Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Leslie Blackhall, who is a Western-trained physician with a passion for Tibetan medicine. Well, not only a passion, she's really uh, thoroughly steeped in it, has studied it in India and been to Tibet. And as you know, that is not a well-known system of medicine in this country. So I'm very anxious to hear what she can tell us about it. Well, let's get her on. Okay. Dr. Leslie Blackhall is a graduate of the NYU School of Medicine and serves as head of palliative care at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. She is a nationally known expert on end-of-life care. Leslie was called to this work when, as a medical student, she witnessed the reductive and often dehumanizing ways that seriously ill and dying patients were treated. Her search for alternative approaches led her to Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan medicine. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you very much. I'm so pleased to be here. We're so glad to have you. You studied with Dr. Yeshe Dondon, who's the Dalai Lama's personal physician. Maybe you could begin by telling our listeners a bit about your training in Tibetan medicine. Well, on a personal level, I came to medical school and I had been very politically active. I met somebody named Joe Luizzo, who's still, he's a psychiatrist in New York, and he teaches people meditative ways to handle their emotional distress. At the time, we were getting in an argument about something, and he said to me, so you call yourself a radical, and radical means root. Is the root of suffering out there or in here? And that, that question blew my mind and actually changed my life because I had to realize that it's out there. There's wars and famine, but the only reason it's out there mostly is because it's in here. There doesn't have to be those things. And that led me to study Tibetan Buddhism. He introduced me to Robert Thurman, and Robert Thurman was the first uh, person ordained as a monk by his Holiness the Dalai Lama, and he didn't stay a monk. And while he was studying as a monk, they decided he should study Tibetan medicine. So he studied with Dr. Yeshu Dundan, and they became close friends. And the institute he ran at that time, the American Institute of Buddhist Studies, every summer had Dr. Dundan there and, and brought him back frequently. And I ended up going over to India, where he was in Dharamsala, and studying with him there. I got my master's in theologic studies, and I learned Tibetan language, and we translated the root tantra, which is the main text. And then I've been working with the largest Tibetan medical group and medical school in China, what was formerly Amdo. While I was studying as a medical student, I was also studying Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan medicine at the same time. And I always tell people that in a way that always gave me a way to look at medicine from a little bit from the outside. I wasn't just sucked into that. Gregory Bates says it takes two to know one, which means if you're a fish, you don't know about water. It's only when you're not in the water, you know about water. And so I had two ways of contrasting these very different views of living and dying and health and wellness and what it meant. I am not very knowledgeable about Tibetan medicine, but my understanding is that it combines elements of Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, shamanism, magic. And that mix is 
quite strange to the Western world, and it's not very accessible here. Um, What would you say, first of all, what do you think Tibetan medicine is good for? When when would you refer somebody to it? That's a really good question. I think in general, this goes for a lot of alternative medical modalities. Biomedicine is really crappy with things that span mind and body. There Mm -hmm. are a lot of illnesses, in fact, almost all illnesses, but there are a lot of illnesses for which that connect fibromyalgia, irritable bowel, chronic fatigue, even depression, anxiety, where mind and body are just absolutely intertwined. We throw pills at those things or we shunt somebody to somewhere else, but the medical system itself doesn't have a way to make sense of that. The other thing is biomedicine is not good at preventative medicine and wellness. There's a little bit of preventive medicine. I get my mammograms and et cetera, but really creating a sense of wellness, of you know, health. And then there's something that really interests me is that Tibetan medicine, because of its very close connection with Tibetan Buddhism, has a, has a sort of way of understanding what medicine is for, what health is for, maybe, that I think we could use in this culture because there's a thing that bothers me is that there are a lot of things like meditation and yoga that have made it into this country and are really very popular, and that's good. But the way they've made it into this country is if you do yoga, you'll look better. Do you know what I mean? Or you're, you'll be a little healthier and your arms will be stronger, your your core will be better. Or if you meditate, it's like almost a very mercenary type view of what it is. Mm-hmm. Transactional. But, transactional, thank you. That's a much better word. Um but the purpose of meditation isn't just to give you health. In a way, the purpose of health is to give you meditation. Mm-hmm. Because the goal of all humans is to become fully enlightened. And living longer, the purpose of living longer, really, is to have time for you to cultivate your mind and spirit. And as someone who deals with end-of-life care, I think a lot about what it means what it is we want to do with the time we have. And that's the thing that really drew me to that kind of medical care is that very deep connection, not just between mind and body, but mind, body, and spirit. I I guess I want to ask you to speak a little bit more about this interesting connection between the spirituality that comes from the Tibetan Buddhist practices and the way that influences Tibetan medicine, because it sounds like you're making that quite primary, which I think is not as common in another system of medicine that I could think of off the top of my head, maybe Native American practices. It's more primary. Well, I think one thing that's important is that Tibetan medicine didn't come to the West. It came to the West later. Mm -hmm. It's very textually based. So it was in a way, because Tibet was so isolated, very preserved, which is interesting. Tibetan medicine in a way is like Ayurveda, and that's a humoral system, right? There's the three humors of Ayurveda, is Vada, Pita, and Kapha. And those mm-hmm. same three humors, the balance of them is what, you know, is considered health and their lung tipa begin or the will wind bile and phlegm in Tibetan medicine. So the interesting thing is not to give a lecture in Tibetan Buddhism, but the cause of suffering in Buddhist philosophy is misknowledge, ignorance about the world, about the nature of reality. And that in turn causes 
hatred. It causes like greed or craving or desire and anger. And it causes like closed mindedness and ignorance and prejudice, basically. So those three, they're called the three poisons. But those three poisons are the basis of the three humors that sort of ambitious, striving, grasping, clinging nature is lung, is wind. And that sort of anger, hatred, that's sort of the emotions in that range are tipa. They are it. They aren't just caused by it. They are the physical aspect of those mental states. And then begin or phlegm, as they call it, is ignorance and prejudice, closed-mindedness. So those things have a really close connection. They are each other, if that makes sense to you. And I once asked one of the Tibetan doctors, since changes in your mental state or cultivating anger over a lifetime and maybe watching Fox News or something, getting more and more angry, sorry, that little thing, I'm getting more and more angry would inflame and raise that particular humor and set it often in balance. But can it go the other way? If you do something to improve the balance of your three humors, does it go back the other way? And Yeshi Dundon, I believe it was, who said to me, it's like the fr- tree and the fruit. It doesn't go the other way as much, okay? The root of everything of these physical states really is those mental states. Like Ayurveda for health, Tibetan medicine is looking at the balance of those humors. I don't know if anybody would be familiar with it, but Freud said that what he was trying to achieve with psychoanalysis is to get people to a normal level of neurosis, okay? (laughs) In a certain way, that, that enlightenment eliminates those three emotions. So that kind of health that's balanced is a little bit different than the ultimate goal of human beings. If, and so really the only healthy person is the Buddha and the only doctor is the Buddha who can teach you to go beyond that, being a normal level of a person who is still someone stuck in this world in samsara. So that's an overview of what that looks like. And then the idea behind what Tibetan doctors do is that they're trying to balance those humors, but everybody is born not being a little bit out of balance. Like you have more of one than the other. Nobody's born with a perfect balance of those things. And people tend to like do things that cultivate that. So physicians are like, they're trying to get good grades so they can get to college. And then they're working hard and grasping and hoping to get into medical school and working hard and all of that striving and ambition that goes on and on. And it's never enough. You get a fellowship that's great. And then you have to get a thing and then you want to be the section head and then you want to be the dean, which I would never be the dean. <laughs> I put my head in the blender. Okay. But you know what I mean? That kind of striving would intend to inflame that particular thing. And and I've said before, somebody who doesn't read anything, who doesn't ever try to learn something different, and who's uninterested in things, they may be that way because they had a tendency for that when they were born, but that's a mental state that can do that. And in addition, of course, there are foods that, that sort of stir up and increase the lung or the wind, and there are foods, and there's various things in the outside world that can either help or hurt it. 
And so here's the connection with Chinese medicine. Most of the remedies of Tibetan medicine are these herbal pills that have some of them have 20 different herbs in them to balance them out. And they have a lot of herbal baths and steam and herbal compresses. But they also do, like in Chinese medicine, acupuncture and moxa. And I think in terms of theory, they have the elements theory is very important in Tibetan medicine as well and in Tibetan pharmacology. So the earth, air, wind, and fire. Let me ask you about something a little different. Tibetan Buddhism has a strong focus on death and dying. And I wonder how that's influenced your work in end-of-life care. I actually wrote a book chapter in the most recent mm. handbook of thanatology with Dr. Kunchal Gelson about this issue. So we're working together to try to parse it out. Oh, you've got a very cute dog behind you. <laughs> um, uh, and he told me once that he hated death certificates. And so it took us a while to figure out, you know, why. And it, it, the problem for him was that there's a cause of death, okay? From the Tibetan point of view, from the Buddhist point of view, the cause of death is life. Right. You know, death <laughs> is in, but it's very important. Death is intrinsic. Mm -hmm. But for us in biomedicine, death is extrinsic. That's why we have this whole thing about the causes of death. We're going to beat cancer. We're going to beat this. We have a war on that. And we have made a lot of strides. But at the end, if people are continually hoping for the next miracle, whether it's a miracle from God or a miracle from the National Cancer Institute. So I give a talk called Lazarus and the Mustard Seed. And the story of Lazarus, which is in the Bible, is a story of someone who dies and Jesus raises him from the dead to show the power and glory of God. And it's a beautiful story. It's actually one of the more beautiful passages in the Bible. There's a similar but way different story in Buddhism, which is about a woman whose baby has died. And she gave birth and the baby died when he was very young. And she's crazed and she's going from place to place and doctor to doctor, carrying her baby, saying, you have to help my baby. You have to fix my baby. So finally, someone points towards the Buddha and says, go talk to that guy. And he says to her, I can bring your baby back if you can bring me a mustard seed from the house where nobody there has known anyone who died. And so she goes from house to house and everybody says, oh, I'm so sorry. My son died or my brother died or my father died. And she spends a whole night doing that. And she realizes that death comes for everybody. And so she buries her baby and she becomes a disciple of the Buddha. And I think you can say that's quite a different idea of dying. It's a really beautiful contrast. And I want to ask you a question. For 10 years, I taught at a retreat program for women who had a cancer diagnosis. It was at the Shambhala Mountain Center in Colorado, which is a Tibetan Buddhist retreat center. And uh, it was a wonderful a gift, a pro bono program. Um, it was called Courageous Women Fearless Living. And I have to say, I loved the name. To me, that is evocative of some of the uh, chants that focused on fearlessness and courage and kind of supported some of that attitude in the women. That feels different to me than this perspective that death is intrinsic, because certainly these women 
some of them knew they were going to die and that was why they were there but others were absolutely in a different stage perhaps of their cancer a different stage of their um perspective on even advanced cancer and they were looking for their courage to address an illness to fight yes to fight mm-hmm. so i just want you to know i did an anti hope ted talk it's called living <laughs> living dying the problem with hope and so here's the problem if what's getting you through your fear of you know it's scary as hell my parents died of cancer i will probably die of cancer i always say to people this is how palliative care doctors think if they cured cancer i'd be really glad and my next thought would be i guess i have to die of dementia <laughs> because people you know what i mean people die most people don't die of aids anymore but they're not going to live forever so if what's getting you through is hope your hope of living longer that can help but as you get closer to the end of life and you get more scared so that hope is also fear i just want to say that because i'm not hoping to live till christmas my patients often are hoping to live till christmas because i'm not afraid i'm not going to live till christmas do you see what i'm saying mm-hmm. i don't hope the sun will be up tomorrow i assume the sun will be up tomorrow so that hope is something they're using to press away in a way the fear and that's okay for a while and it can be really good but the closer you get towards the end of life the more it and that's your tool the more you need that hope and the more you're pinning hope on things that are less and less of a chance of helping and that's how you end up in the ICU at the end of your life mm-hmm. and so hope and fear are emotional states right they're emotions about the future in fact they're not that helpful what helps to look at what's going on in your body and your mind and try to help that on a day by day basis you can hope to live longer you can hope to have a better life but the question i ask my patients is what are you hoping to do with the time you have however long it is right let's make that good so people don't spend the end of their life going to one doctor after the other and not being with their family so that's a question we should all ask ourselves what do we hope to do with whatever time we have and let's do it now forget your bucket list by the time you want to do your bucket list cuz you've got advanced cancer you're too sick to do your bucket list if you really want to go do something do it now there's a meditation but it's also a saying in tibetan buddhism which is death is certain its timing is uncertain each day takes us one day closer to death and in the end the only thing that helps is our spiritual practice I don't think that's depressing. That shows you who I am. Mm-hmm. But I do think trying to let go of that feeling of I feel sad when people are fighting because if something bad happens, if they decide to stop doing chemotherapy, are they a quitter? Do you see what I'm saying? That's not true any of it. Oh, I agree with you. And I think finding that place. Yes. Finding that place, look, it's very hard and I think whatever tools you need them but you need to, to drop the tools when they're no longer serving you and you have to see how much that focusing on that fighting hope thing might be a tense energy and going into the fear a little bit looking at that fear i always tell people it's like if you want to play 
you want to be in a rock band, okay? You play the guitar. And then you're hoping that you'll be like a rock star and everybody loves you and you're fearing that you'll everybody will hate you. But none of those things helps. You got to look and say, how's my guitar playing? Hmm. Similarly, you're hoping you'll live till your grandchildren graduate from college and you're afraid you'll die tomorrow. In the meantime, those are just thoughts you're having. How, do you need to improve your nutrition? Is the course you're on of whatever treatment you're on helping you? And having an honest look at yourself. That's what helps being able to really look at what's going on in your mind, body, and spirit. It's impossible to completely let go, but try to just notice that your mind is being dominated by this emotional state that's probably not doing you a whole lot of good. Yeah, the uh, Tibetan Buddhist teacher at the retreat, Judy Leaf, wrote a book called Making Friends with Death. So that perspective was also there. I will just say that from my perspective, Accepting doesn't mean you have to like it. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? You can hate it. You just have to acknowledge that it's there. Here's a practical question. How accessible is Tibetan medicine in the U.S.? It's not as accessible as it could be, partly because unlike Chinese medicine, there's no way of being licensed in it. Mm -hmm. I will say there's somebody named Alex Tokar in New York. I don't want to be an advertisement for him, but he's quite good. And there is also, I think, and I'll be happy to give you these links. Mm-hmm. So there's a institute, I think it's Sam Shung, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, that used to be the only Tibetan medical school in the States back in the day. And it was in Western Mass. And I noticed now when I was looking at their website that they're now online. And it has that website has a lot of links. So I can probably give you a lot of different links that can allow your listeners if they want. But the problem with Tibetan medicine, one of the problems is that the herbal remedies, which are the basis of their treatment, are their medications and they're not like FDA approved. Let's put it that way. Can you give us an example, someone who you've cared for using Tibetan medicine, where this very different approach from Western biomedicine would be evident. I want to say that I do not utilize Tibetan medicine because they study as long as I did. Mm -hmm. I am very respectful of the amount of study and practice it takes. They go to four years of medical school, they do apprenticeships, they learn a lot of stuff about diagnostic techniques. However, I can tell you things I've seen. To give you an example, lung, people who have an overactive lung, that's uh, wind. So these are people who are a little anxious or ambitious and worried that they aren't enough. The way of looking at the three humors, I think the better way is looking at them at three functions. Wind, where lung is nervous system energy, biosomatic things, and bacon is fluids that hold and lubricate. For example, in your stomach, from Western medicine, it's more anatomic idea. But for Tibetan medicine, there's the lung or the wind that controls the contractions of the stomach. And then there's the tripa, the bile, which is not just the bile, it comes from your gallbladder, would be the digesting. And the vacuum is the fluid that sort of the neutral fluids that hold it all together, just to say this. So they tend to be on the one hand, often very physically active and um, mentally anxious and driven. And they would be prone to anxiety or panic attacks mental states and certain types maybe of irritable bowel where you have a lot of diarrhea because you're 
nervous system aspects of your intestine are in overdrive. Okay, so the way to help this, if it's sort of a lung predominant thing, is on number one, to cultivate mental states that are calmer, that help calm you down, help relax you, and helps notice how your mind is spinning like that. And the second thing, to seek out behavioral things like it would be better for a lung person to be where you are, Andrew, in Tucson, where it's 110, uh-huh. than somebody who's a bile, which because bile is very fiery, you might need to be cooled down. And then there are foods that tend to promote one humor or the other. And so you'd have to avoid those ones. And then there are medications that might cool down that. I've seen people who've told me, and this is in the Tibetan medical outpatient setting, how much improvement they've had from that approach. These are Tibetan people, by the way. Can you speak to, okay, you have excess wind, what foods would you recommend to that person? This is where the three, the humoral system takes over. So earth, air, wind, fire, and sometimes space is put in there, right? Mm -hmm. So lung or wind is obviously air and Mm -hmm. bile is fire and earth is water and bacon. So actually, there are these tastes like sweet, sour, salty, astringent, and each of them is associated, each of those tastes is associated with different elements. Mm -hmm. For example, sweet food is earth and water. So yay, lung, it's okay to eat sweet food, but Mm -hmm. certainly maybe for other ones like phlegm, that's not a good thing to eat. Right. So it's that it's true of herbs too. When they want to know if they're in a different place of what the potency of that herb is, tasting it is one way to know Mm -hmm. because the taste of the herb tells you how it works. That's the basis for which they'll give you dietary changes. And it's more than that. So actually, Kunchak, Dr. Kunchak, who's both a monk and a PhD from UCLA and a Tibetan traditional physician gave us a whole sort of chart with the different potencies of those things. And that's the basis on which they would give you that advice. For example, if you have a bile disorder, spicy foods are probably not the thing, but it might be good for people who have an excess of phlegm. You know, phlegmatic is a term that comes from the Greek system was also humoral. And in addition, the other thing I've seen is people this was also when I was in Tibet in Jinning, uh, they have these herbal baths and herbal compresses that are external therapies that seem to be very effective, that external placement for that type of joint pain rather than pills. Although often those are diseases of phlegm and they do take pills internally as well. And so also those are good for skin diseases and things like that. But one thing I just want to mention, because Andrew mentioned it, is that the other interesting thing about Tibetan medicine is they have four basic causes of when you get sick of imbalance. One is from a past lifetime, karmic. Mm -hmm. And that's like genetic disease. In other words, you're born with something like that. And so what we call genetic disease, they would probably think of as karmic disease. And then the second is disease of one lifetime. So that's if you spend your whole life cultivating like I said, me as a doctor, I had to work to not be that person who was always like needing and running around and trying to get everything and trying to do everything. 
and you do that over your whole lifetime without cease, then you can end up with certain kinds of illnesses, which are treatable, but a little harder because they're deeply rooted. And then there are diseases that are more superficial, what we'd consider food poisoning or something like that, that happen from maybe just more recent things like that. Does that make sense? But the fourth one is spirit caused. That's what you were thinking about, Andrew. Yep. So the thing is, Tibetan medicine before the Chinese invasion, 50% of all of the physicians were monks. That's not as true now. But those physicians, monks, are not the ones who are going to teach you how to do the meditations you need, because it's assumed that you have that resource, Mm -hmm. as it was true in that community. So people, especially with karmic diseases, that felt to be very hard to treat or maybe not treatable, except for cultivating meditations. And it may take another lifetime for you to but develop that meditation. And similarly, there are shamanistic practitioners in Tibet, or there were, and I suppose there still are. And if they have a spirit-caused illness, that's also someone you would refer out. And interestingly, the diagnostic things are like urinalysis, and this is pulse, this is why I'm doing this thing. <laughs> and there's a, there's a description of what the urine looks like of somebody who has a spirit-caused illness and how you can tell which spirit it is. And Yeshu Dundon told me when he came to the States that he sometimes felt, especially people with serious mental illnesses, had a spirit-caused illness, but he often didn't say anything about it to them because he didn't know if it would be accepted. And he didn't know what kind of spirits we have in this country. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't have the resources that they had. So this just tells you there's a way in which some of these things were embedded in there. And one of the conversations I've had with some of the people who are trying to practice in the States is a bit of building that sort of at least the meditative part in and be more explicit about it than you had to be in Tibet. And I think that's what's happened now is that they have to be a little more explicit about this is the type of meditation if you're interested. But some of the people aren't Buddhist, but they have to find practices mm-hmm. within their own. Well, I think this has been so fascinating. And I so appreciate your willingness to share some of your wisdom about this traditional system of medicine that really is not well known here in the West. And I think you've given us a sense also of its complexity and and the context in which it flourishes. And so therefore, some of the challenges of bringing it to the West. Yeah, I want to say, I think that's true of many systems of Mm -hmm. medicine. And I think I have a lot of respect for anybody who delves into really learning how to do those. I think what's happened in this culture around having real medical schools where people can learn, like your place, Andrew, where people can really learn more in depth about these instead of doing a weekend. I think it's wonderful that we're having a a more in-depth way of people understanding it. And I think, Andrew, you've really been one of the people who's made that real. Thanks. We are trying, and I would love to include more information about Tibetan medicine in our curriculum. Great. So thank you. I'd be happy to do it, and we'll work on that. So thank you guys so much, and you have a very cute dog is the last thing. (laughs) (laughs) 